I'm always staggered. This has happened with many books of the Bible, but I'm always staggered that you can study. You can, you know, I do a little translation, all this stuff. I'm a, you know, Bible nut. No, I shouldn't say that anyway, but whatever. You know, I love to say the word. And, uh, but when I am preparing sermons for this body, more understanding and revelation always comes. So this one especially, right, as we've walked through these times and seen the relevance. So as we are going to look at a passage in Jeremiah this morning, start looking toward chapter 40. But what we experienced in the George Floyd riots and his death, shock and grief, and then for a time chaos and senseless violence and probably some with an agenda to deliberately increase that chaos and violence. And You know, how do you respond when everything's shattered like that? Well, interestingly, that's a bit of what Judah experienced at the point of the destruction of Jerusalem when they collapsed after a year of Babylonian siege. They were surrounded for a year. And so uh, chapter 39 of Jeremiah and 52 tell us about the fall of, of Jerusalem. And that's very, very similar to the book of Kings and Chronicles. Uh... But Jeremiah 40 to 44 give us a glimpse of a time period that is dealt with nowhere else in the Bible. The chaos after the fall of Jerusalem, the immediate days following the fall of Jerusalem. The question is, how will Judah, who was already struggling for faith, respond when everything falls apart. So that, of course, is the same question that we face at times in our society. We face crisis. How can we respond to crisis? So Jeremiah 40 to 44, we'll take some snapshots out of that section of the scriptures, give us several responses to crisis. So the first response to crisis we're given is integrity. And so as we're looking at chapter 40, Jeremiah is discovered uh, in chains by the Babylonians, and he's freed by the Babylonian commander, and uh, he is given an opportunity. Now, if you've read Jeremiah, if you've followed the sermon series at all, you understand that Jeremiah has had a miserable life upholding the truth of God. Right? He has been ridiculed. He has been rejected. He has been laughed at. They have put him in stocks where he stands and has to be you know, spit at and, and, and mocked. And he's been thrown in the bottom of muddy wells and nearly killed. And they tried to starve him to death. Well, the Babylonians, because they're polytheists, they recognize, even though they have their own God, they recognize that this, you know, this Yahweh has uh, uh, given a message to Jeremiah that they think is right. And so they're going to give him, they offer him an honorable retirement. You can, you can come back to Babylon and we'll feed you and take care of you. And this was not, you know, uh, an empty promise. There was, Daniel was already in Babylon, a high official in uh, the court there. Uh, Ezekiel's living in Babylon. Many of the royalty that were, they were favored and cared for in Babylon. So here's his chance to be like, whoo, a nice, you know, he's 65 years old about, Right. Here's a chance for retirement, a relaxed life, honor. He says, you know, if you, or if you want, you can stay with Gedaliah, who's going to be governor. And he knew that Gedaliah, Gedaliah had been a supporter of Jeremiah's, right? So 
so what does he do? He chooses to continue to identify with the people of God and to carry the word of God and not to retire. Wow. And so he stays. Gedalia then is our focus for this first point here. He's appointed governor and he's a worthy shepherd. Uh, Let's read a little bit out of chapter 40, starting in verse 7. When all the army officers and their men who were still in the open country heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedalia son of Ahikam as governor over the land and had put him in charge of the men, women, and children who were the poorest in the land and had not been carried into exile to Babylon. They came to, to Gedaliah at Mizpah and then they list a bunch of these guys. So, so who are these guys? Well, in our language, they would be insurgents, right? Babylon's won the battle, but these guys are still out in the countryside, different insurgent bands, guerrilla bands, right? And so he's calling in these guys, you know, come on in, right? So they do, they come in, they name a couple of them. Ishmael will come up again and and Yohanan will come up again, right? And then verse 9, Gedaliah son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, took the oath to reassure them and their men. Don't be afraid to serve the Babylonians. Settle down in the land, serve the king of Babylon, it'll go well with you, right? I myself will stay at Mizpah to represent you before the Babylonians who come to us. But you're to harvest the wine, summer fruit, and oil, put them in your storage jars, and live in the towns you've taken over. So verse 11 tells us that they believe him, and they all come in. So now think about this. Babylon has been at odds with Judah for a long time, but especially in the last year. They're insurgent bands, and Gedalia works this deal out with the Babylonians saying, look... You can come in, you know, all the really powerful people are being exiled, but the poorest people that aren't even worth exiling are left behind. He says, you know, just come in. We've got enough leftover fields to harvest here. We're going to be okay. He's being a shepherd. He's modeling shepherding here. He's caring for the people, right? And so, and so he had some significant uh, trust and authority from the Babylonians to say they could take these guerrilla bands and offer them amnesty, right? This is great. A chance to live and to live well, and so they believe him, and they come in, um, and and notice, um, let's see here, Uh, he's got the power to offer amnesty, Um, let's see where this is, I don't see it here, yeah, well anyway, we'll we'll get to it, Uh, what he basically says is that God will be with them, all right, so in other words, earlier in Jeremiah, God says, I'll be with the exiles, but not with Zedekiah's people who are in the land. So if you read Jeremiah superficially, you think, oh, okay, he's, you know, he's going to have a remnant exile. Uh, the people that stay behind, they're toast, right? But that's not really what's going on. Zedekiah's people were, in fact, going to be judged because they were resisting God. But here's another band in the land, and now they are say, being uh, promised, say, if you will just trust me, I'll take care of you. So the issue is not whether they were in Babylon or in Judah. The issue is, would they begin to trust God? And if they would, even under this disaster, God would restore grace, right? Well, but there's a danger, and we're going to do a little bit of reading here this morning, be a little more like a Bible study, but hang in there, because I want you to get the story. So verse 13, one of these guerrilla commanders, Yohanan, son of Kerea, And all the army officers still in the open country came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said to him, don't you know 
that Baalus, or Baalus, king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, that's one of the other generals, to take your life. But Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, did not believe him. Well, so he's going to try again. Verse 15, then Yohanan, son of Kariah, said privately to Gedaliah in Mizpah, look, let me go and kill Ishmael, son of Nathaniah. No one will know it. Why should he take your life and cause all the Jews who are gathered around you to be scattered and the remnant of Judah to perish? But Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, said to Yohanan, son of Kareah, don't do such a thing. What you're saying about Ishmael is not true. Now, we might be tempted to accuse Gedaliah of idealism here. But put yourself in his position. You got to really, you know, what's he experiencing? Got all these insurgent bands around you, and one guy says the other guy wants to kill you. So he says, I'll go kill this other general for you and assassinate him. Oh, that's a great way to establish a just society, right? <laughs> okay, so you, you, know, you can see where from his perspective, this is very tricky, right? So if Gedalia has a fault, it's trust. This one kind of hits me a little bit because this is a part of me that you guys that know me now don't know anymore, or at least maybe not anymore. But as a younger pastor and minister, I think I had my Christianity mixed with a little bit of modernism. And so I just wanted to see, you know, every day and every way we're getting better and better and everyone is wonderful. And you know what? Everyone's not wonderful. And Gedalia learned this the hard way. We're in a very fallen world and some people are evil. And so chapter 41, keep reading. In the seventh month, Ishmael, son of Nehathaniah, son of Elishima, who was of royal blood. Hmm, interesting. What's he thinking about? Maybe he's going to be the next king. And had been one of the king's officers, came with 10 men to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam and Mizpah. While they were eating together there, ancient hospitality customs, he's about to violate them. Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, and the ten men who were with him got up and struck down Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, with the sword, killing the one whom the king of Babylon had appointed as governor over the land. Ishmael also killed all the Jews who were with Gedaliah at Mizpah, as well as the Babylonian soldiers who were there. Oh, my gosh. Assassinated. Ishmael was of royal blood. He may have had pretensions to the throne. Or he may have been a ruthless mercenary. We're told, of course, earlier that he has a, a deal with the, uh, Baalis, the king of the Ammonites. He's treacherous, violating the social norms of ancient hospitality, rewarding Gedalia's overture of grace with murder. I was asking myself as I was reading this passage, they're in the meal, and you know how it is. They didn't have tables, right? Uh, I had a friend from Saudi Arabia down in Mankato, uh, Abdulaziz. And, uh, you know, you sit. It's carpeting, so they put a big plastic thing over. And you sit together in a circle, and the, the rice and the kabsa all just gets piled right in the middle, right? And you use your right hand, never your left hand, because of what they use the left hand for anyway. So, you know, and you're, you're eating like this, right? So here they are. They're sitting in a circle in his tent, right? And suddenly these 10 guys get up. And the knives come out. 
what went through Gedalia's mind in those moments. Disillusionment, anger, regret at not heeding the warning, maybe, but perhaps also the pain of understanding of what this would mean for Judah. Chaos, ruin, poverty, loss. His misplaced trust damaged the community because he was a key person in that moment. The account closes tragically. We won't read all of it. Ishmael murders some repentant men from Shechem. He takes captive the city of Mizpah and some royal daughters of Zechariah. Maybe Baalist has a plan to kind of marry a daughter of Zechariah and make a claim to David's throne. We don't know. Yohanan, this other general, rescues the captives and he does destroy Ishmael's band. So here in this fascinating passage, the first response to crisis is integrity. But the fruit of integrity is destroyed by the self-serving murder of Ishmael. Great Bible lesson, huh? See, part of what we see in this passage, we, we like stories with happy endings. Well, the happy ending's coming, but it's the second coming of Christ, <laughs> okay? Sometimes in this life, even doing the right thing is not rewarded in the short term, and that's what they experienced here. There's another response to crisis, and this is realism, so our sh- focus now will shift to Yohanan, So look at chapter 41. It's all the same story, but down in verse 16, after all these uh, fights, then Yohanan, son of uh, Kereah, and all the army officers who were with him led away all the survivors from Mizpah, whom he had recovered from Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, after he'd assassinated Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the soldiers, women, children, court officials he'd brought from Gibeon. And they went on stopping at a, um, let's see, Garuth Kiham near Bethlehem and on their way to Egypt to escape the Babylonians. They were afraid of them because Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, had killed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had appointed to govern over the land. So they're, they're thinking realistically here, okay, we're in trouble. Uh, this guy's killed Babylonian officers. So verse, uh, chapter 42, verse 1, then all the army officers, including Yohanan uh, and all the people, uh, dropped on verse 2, they approached Jeremiah and said to him, please hear our petition and pray to the Lord your God for this entire remnant. For as you now see, though we were once many, now we're only a few. Pray that the Lord your God will tell us where we should go and what we should do. Okay, this is good. Maybe this is the righteous remnant. They're finally doing the right thing, right? They're fleeing and afraid, but they promise to obey whatever Jeremiah says. So, Jeremiah says this, and this is our key passage. We'll come back to it, but we'll just pass over it quickly, give you more context, and we'll come back to it. But read what God says through Jeremiah to this devastated remnant that is fleeing the Babylonians. Verse 10, if you stay in the land, I will build you up and not uproot you. I will, excuse me, I will build you up and not tear you down. I will plant you and not uproot you. For I am grieved over the disaster I have inflicted on you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. 
Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you and will save you and deliver you from his hands. I will show you compassion so that he will have compassion on you and restore you to the land. Even now, in all of the devastation, if they will just trust and obey, God will make them the righteous remnant. Their response, chapter 43, verses 1 to 3. When Jeremiah finished telling the people all the words of the Lord their God, everything the Lord had sent him to tell them, Azariah, son of Hoshaniah, and Yenohonan, son of Kariah, and all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, you are lying. <laughs> That's not God's word. <gasps> the Lord our God has not sent you to say you must not go to Egypt to settle there. But Baruch, son of Neriah, he's the problem. He's inciting you against us to hand us over to the Babylonians so they may kill us or carry us off to exile in Babylon. So they come, they ask for God's word, and they get it, and they say, it's not true. So they go to Egypt, and guess what? They force Jeremiah to go, too. So here's this guy. He's offered retirement in Babylon. He says, no, I'm going to stay with the people of God. And they drag him against his will and against God's word to Egypt. That had to be. Talk about it, you know. Leadership burnout. Anyway. (laughs) So Yohanan and his people reflect on them. They do uphold the law. They, they, They do what's right. But they're afraid of Babylon. They seek God's way. They promise obedience, but they already have a plan of what God's gonna require. They're wise, they're godly to a point, but they're unwilling to trust God. They're fearful pragmatics, much like Americans. Listen, this is really probably our main lesson this morning. Fear nullifies faith and makes obedience impossible. Fear nullifies trust and erodes obedience. Listen carefully. Speaking, myself included, to the most anxious generation in American history. All of us. Anxiety is not sin. But it is a weakness resulting from a this world perspective that can lead to disobedience. The cure is a radical trust that does not seek survival, but the glory of God. And so we think of Esther confronted with the possibility of death, but to fulfill God's call, she must risk her life. And her response is, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to do the will of God. And that's the only cure for paralyzing anxiety. God won't make you feel better. He'll help you do better. Esther confronted realism with the greater reality of a sovereign God. Freedom from the prison of fear is trust in God and abandonment to his will sans results. Not concerned with a nice, clean result. 
This is crucial. We'll build on this a little bit more. So our second response to crisis is realism. Jeremiah gives us a third response to crisis, which is control. In chapter 44, they're now in Egypt. He warns them against Egyptian idols. You can read it. 44, 1 to 6, they, they say, hey, idols destroyed your forefathers. Don't do it. It's going to destroy you, verses 7 to 14. Look at their response, their last response in 44, verses 13 to 19. Um, verse 15, excuse me, their response. Then all the men who knew their wives were burning incense to other gods, along with all the women who were present, a large assembly... And all of the people living in Lower and Upper Egypt said to Jeremiah, we will not listen to the message you've spoken to us in the name of the Lord. We will certainly do everything we said we would. We'll burn incense to the queen of heaven and we'll pour out drink offerings to her just as we and our forefathers, our kings and our officials did in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Now listen to their reasoning. At that time, we had plenty of food and were well off and suffered no harm. But ever since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we've had nothing and have been perishing by the sword and the famine. You know, ever since this stupid revival under Josiah, we've been having trouble. So we're going back to a reliable God. Yeah. Notice their interpretation of events. Now, this is what is so tricky about false beliefs. Josiah, Jeremiah, and a few others we could name, right? Ezekiel, they look back and they say, before the, uh, before the, the Reformation under Josiah, things were going bad, but God was very patient, waiting for their repentance. They look back and say times were easier. Yeah. Bad things happen when we stopped. We want a God we can control, a God who will give us what we want. You see the hardening from the previous chapter, right? They're, they're, they're less responsive. The relative prosperity early on in Egypt has made them arrogant. So Jeremiah says, go ahead. Read verse 24. Then Jeremiah said to all the people, including the women, hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah in Egypt. This is what the Lord Almighty says. You and your wives have shown by your actions what you promised when you said we will carry out the vows we made to burn incense and pour out drink offerings to the queen of heaven. Go ahead then. Do what you promised. Keep your vows. But hear the word of the Lord, all Jews living in Egypt. I swear by my great name, says the Lord, that no one from Judah living anywhere in Egypt will ever invoke my name or swear as surely as the Lord lives. They will never worship the true God again. They're cut off. It's done. Reprobation is the word for it. This is an hour and a day when the church will be tested, probably not literally being thrown in prison, right? But social approval, maybe tax benefits, (laughs) will be given by going with the values of the culture. 
The choices of integrity, if you are not alert, will be subtle. Again, probably not so much legal issues, but approval, acceptance. The queen of heaven's still around, <laughs> metaphorically speaking. Third response to crisis is control. So where does this lead us? What a great sermon, huh? Woo! <laughs> the brave idealist is murdered. Self triumphs over faith. The fearful realists disobey realism over faith. The angry idolaters choose stability over faith. So those who remain in Judah are not going to be the righteous remnant. It's not always a happy ending. William Albright, the great American archaeologist and, uh, from the past century, said this, real spiritual progress can only be achieved through catastrophe and suffering. I'll read the whole quote, but I want you to hear that part first, right? Here's what he says. Now, he says this in the mid-20th century. It's more true now. He said, nothing could be farther from the truth than the facile belief that God only manifests himself in progress. In the improvement of standards of living, in the spread of medicine, in the reform of abuses, and in the diffusion of organized Christianity. The reaction from this type of theistic meliorism, sorry, theistic, you know, we'd call it therapeutic deism, but anyway, which a few years ago had almost completely supplanted the faith of Moses, Elijah, and Jesus among modern Christians, is now sweeping multitudes from their religious moorings. In other words, if you think that Christianity means that in every day, in every way, life gets better and better, you're going to be disillusioned, is what he's trying to say. And then the quote that I gave you earlier, real spiritual progress can only be achieved through catastrophe and suffering, reaching new levels after the profound catharsis which accompanies major upheavals. Interestingly, he wrote this before the late 60s. <laughs> Every such period of mental and physical agony, while the old is being swept away and the new is still unborn, yields different social patterns and deeper spiritual insights. Suffering produces revival, reformation, restoration. So let's read again Jeremiah 42, 10 to 12. With your leave, my own translation might be a little different from what's up there. If you will surely remain in this land, I will build you up and not tear down. I will plant you and not pluck you. For I am grieved of the disaster which I did to you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babel, whom you fear. Do not be afraid of him, says the Lord. Because I am with you to save you and rescue you from his hand, I will show compassion to you, and as a result, he will have compassion on you and return you to the land. In verse 10, where it says, I am grieved, the idea is not that God is repenting of his action of judgment, but that he is grieved, sighing sorrowfully over the necessity of discipline. Now, this is a key insight for the people of God. He's not saying, oops, I made a mistake, but he is saying God's heart is broken when he must bring difficulty into the lives of the people of God. Sometimes we read the Old Testament prophets and we think, wow, that's the God of wrath. 
even in the wrath, he says, I'm grieved that I had to do that. I wish you would have woken up without a major devastation. Think what that word means today to the North American church. God's saying, I don't want to have to do anything else to wake you up. I don't want to make it any harder. I'm grieved at what you've already experienced. God doesn't like it when things hard for us are hard for us. But there's something more important than our comfort. And that's that we'd be alive. <laughs> so the lesson, stay, he says, where I planted you. I'll build you up. Don't be afraid. Isn't this amazing? At this point, with so much disobedience, and he even knows they're planning on disobeying, we see the grace of God offering a covenant. The choice is clear, fear or God. They've not trusted, and even as they listen, they plan to disobey, but God's deep compassion saying, no, listen, I'll give you my grace. How much more in the new covenant? God is so willing to forgive. All he asks is we reach out and trust. Draw near. Risk covenant relationship. Listen, you're going to have to, get, you're gonna have to kick Egypt out. You are going to have to, you know, not that any of us have sinless perfection, but you know what I mean. It, it confronts you and you're like, nope. It confronts you again, nope. Every day or every five seconds, whatever it is, certain seasons of life, right? No, I'm not going the way of, I'm not. In other words, the thing that looks like it will give what we crave is Egypt. Anything aside from covenant. Now, you know what this is like. If you're all anxious, what's the greatest temptation to lust for most of us? Anxiety. And it's a medicine for the anxiety we feel, right? So we got to repudiate Egypt. Fear, you know, lust, greed, and pride. Fear is what paralyzes the steps of faith. Fear of failure, fear of looking stupid, fear of what people will think. So like Judah, we trust the compassion of God toward us. For them... The trust was to remain in the land and trust that the Babylonians would not wipe them out. For us, there's various aspects of trust. Some examples. The risk of parenting in Christ. Scary, but fulfilling. Now, I say that not to people who are already parents, but those that are considering becoming parents. Yes, it is scary. But if you are married and called together, that risk of becoming a parent is a step of faith. Wow, powerful. Sexuality itself. Trusting that God's ways with sexuality will ultimately fulfill. See, it's, the lust is not even what's primary. It's trust that God loves you, that I don't need pornography or whatever thing it would be, that I can trust that God can bring fulfillment and peace to my soul 
through his ways as I will hang on. Even bigger, those steps of faith in career or ministry that really take trust, looking at that anxiety that would paralyze you and saying, I will move forward. Some of you, now, you you have chronic depression, you go to a doctor, you, you consult with a doctor, right? But some of you, there's a depression that comes when you fail to step out in faith because of anxiety. And there's an ennui, right? There's a, there's a, a malaise in your soul because you're living safe and you're not designed to live safe. You're designed to live tr- in trust. And so there's a sense of ennui. Uh, you know, I'm discontent. I'm, I'm a little bit blue and depressed. Yes, because you're not living God's will in your life. And I will tell you what, God's will is not safe, but it's good. Yeah? Hey, what have you got to worry about? You believe in Jesus, you're going to heaven, right? All the rest has changed. You know, he says, just go for it, right? You know? <laughs> yeah. So confront your fears and move to covenant faith. Let's stand together. For all of us that are here today and sharing together through the live stream, I invite you to stand. If you're at home, I don't know, you can do whatever you want, but just you know, get, your, get your mind and your attention on the Lord. And we're going to open up prayer time this morning. And I'm going to invite you, those that are here, I invite you to come up, consciously release your fears to the Lord. If you've got somebody you know, with you that they know you well enough, if you want to talk about it a little bit, just release those fears. I'm talking about every anxiety. Just release it. First Peter 5 says, casting our anxiety on him because he cares for you. Release it. Offer yourself to God. And then receive God's call. Let's pray together. While I pray, I'm going to invite you. Just come seek the Lord. Come forward and and release. Lord, in Jesus' name, we come before you right now. We release to you every anxiety about health, COVID, every concern economically, socially, relationally, Lord. We offer ourselves to you, God. We release every fear into your hands. Father, we ask in Jesus' name, We offer ourselves to you, O God. We pray in Jesus' name that you would renew your call in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's just take a time of prayer.